That was wonderful, wasn't it? When they started walking off, I said, Adel, that's all? They could sing another one. We want to give a welcome to anyone who's visiting today. I hope you brought your Bible with you at San Ramon Valley Bible Church. This is what we study. And this is the only message we have. And so today we're going to be finishing in the book of Ruth. So I'll invite you to turn with me to chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. And while you're finding Ruth chapter 4, I'll take advantage of the moment to say how much I've enjoyed being here and how hard it is to say goodbye. So I won't say goodbye, I'll say see you later. And thank you for your prayers. And we remember you in Spain, and we know you remember us. We're very well aware of it, and we thank you for it. So. Ruth chapter 4, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake, came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi... Thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming, And concerning changing, for to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. This was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. And he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, The wife of Malon have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. We're certain of it. And we're going to look to him now in a word of prayer, asking for his help. We give thanks, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful privilege that we have. We are aware of so many places in the world where people don't have the liberty or the ability to meet and to worship and to study as we do. And so we pray that we will never 
be lazy or complacent about our privileges and the blessings that we have been given. We will take advantage of every opportunity. And we've come today to look into your word. Who are we? We are just branches. The Lord Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. We will never be anything but branches, Lord, and we're happy to be that. But we're aware of the fact that we need help from you this morning. The one who's speaking needs your help. The ones who are listening need your help. We need the ministry of your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. To take, as the Lord Jesus promised, to take of the things of Christ and show them unto us. And to speak with complete liberty to our hearts. To say to us whatever you wish. And to touch our lives in a practical way, in whatever way you so desire. For your will is good and perfect and acceptable. And so, we commit ourselves into your care, asking for your help and expecting it in the name, above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We left off in chapter 3 with a piece of advice from Naomi to Ruth. She said, sit still, my daughter. So, we left Ruth sitting And waiting at the end of chapter 3. Sitting and waiting and hoping. In the word of a man who had given his word that he was going to do something. He said, tarry the night, verse 13. And it shall be in the morning if he will not perform unto thee the part of the kinsman. Well, let him do the kinsman's part. If he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do it. He said, in the morning. He didn't say, I'll try to get to it. He didn't say, mañana, like we say in Spain when we used to, at the beginning of our time there, we used to think when people said mañana, it meant the next day after today. Sometimes it does, but generally speaking, mañana means the indefinite future. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Mañana, mañana. It means uh, a little farther down. This man had left not one, but two women waiting to see how the matter would be resolved. He was a man of honor, and he was a man who kept his word. That's why when you read chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Then went Boaz up to the gate. I don't know how much he slept that night, but I know this. He had business to tend to that day. He had people waiting on him, people depending on him. And whatever he felt, whatever other things he had to do, because he was not an idle man, he went to the gate to fulfill his word and to do what he had promised that he would do. Oh, well, if Boaz can do that, how much more does God do it? How much more does the Lord Jesus Christ do it? We come to chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. This is our last letter. R, I'm waiting. Chapter 1, R. Resolve. Chapter 2, U, unselfishness. Chapter 3, T, trust. Chapter 4, honor. In second, or in 1 Samuel, chapter 2 and verse 30, God says this. Them that honor me will I honor. Them that honor me will I honor. God is no man's debtor. When a person puts God first, when a person honors God in his life, when a person makes a commitment to God, you cannot outgive God. You cannot honor God to the point where He will come to you and say, Oh, thank you so much for that. 
He's going to honor you. And you'll end up in the end giving him the thanks. Them that honor me will I honor. How many people in this world are looking in vain for honor? They're looking for honor among men. They're looking for popularity. They're looking for fame. They're looking for success. They're looking for everything. But God is not in their formula. God is not in all their thoughts. The first time Boaz spoke, we saw him in chapter 2. When he spoke, the very first thing he said, he blessed them in the name of the Lord, his workers. The Lord came out of his mouth the first time he opened it. Everything that he did as a godly Jew, as a generous, loving man, concerned for the foreigners, concerned for the downcast, letting them come into his fields and giving more than he had to give to her. We saw it in chapter 2. Taking of the, the water that the young men drew so that she could eat. Telling them to leave handfuls of grain on purpose in the fields, more than what was normally left, so that she could come along and, and uh, reap it. Glean it. And he gave her to eat. He sat down and he gave her to eat. He reached the parched corn and he gave it to her to eat. This is a man who has gone beyond the bound, the simple boundaries of obligation and who is loving the stranger and the foreigner. With that simple act of love and kindness, God, on the part of Ruth toward Naomi, going out to work in the field, and on the part of Boaz and his kindness to her, God began to work in them. And we come finally to this wonderful chapter of honor. I know some of you are waiting for the outline, so I'll give it to you quickly. Verses 1 to 8, the meeting in the gate. Verses 9 and 10, the declaration where Boaz declares himself. Or as they used to, hillbillies used to say in North Carolina, I'm a declaring for you. (laughs) So he makes his declaration. And then in verses 11 to 17, the blessings begin to flow. And finally we have the genealogy. So we have in verses 18 to 22, the genealogy or the lineage. So we have we have the meeting in verses 1 to 8, the declaration in verses 9 and 10, the blessings in verses 11 to 17, and then the final, 18 to 22, we have the lineage given. This lineage doesn't seem very important to us. I'm not going to have a lot of time to go into it today. Sorry, Vince. Uh, but this lineage is repeated in the book of First Chronicles chapter 2, and even more importantly, it's repeated, it's repeated in the book of Matthew chapter 1 where we find four women who are of great surprise that end up in the lineage of the Messiah, and Ruth is one of them. So let's go now to the meeting in verses 1 to 8. Boaz goes to the gate to seek the near kinsman. Three times in this chapter we have the word gate. One of the ways you know what a chapter is about and what the thought is in it is by looking to see what words are repeated. And what thoughts are repeated in it. So you read it through. You just read it several times. And as you're reading it, look for things that are repeated. Gate is one of them. But there's another word that's repeated a lot more in this chapter than the word gate. And it's the word redeem in its various forms. Redeem, buy, purchase, bought. All of these come from the same idea. Because this is what it means to to redeem, to buy for oneself. And we're going to come to that thought a little later on. But here he is. In the gate, he goes to the gate, and the first thing he did was he sat down. He's not in a hurry. He's sitting, and he's waiting, 
And isn't it a coincidence? Along comes the very man that he needs to talk to. Well, of course, in the gate of the city. Everyone who's working the fields, everyone who has any business is coming and going through the gate. Or they come by the street in front of the gate. So if you're sitting in the gate, sooner or later you're going to see everyone in the city. He went up to the gate. He didn't go off into a private room and sit down and have a secret meeting with this man. He sat down in the gate and now he's going to take his witnesses so that everyone is going to know what's happening. This is not a secret backroom decision made by a few. This is something that's being done in public. He sits in the gate of the city, a strategic place. Now, the other day when we were looking at Deuteronomy 25 about redeeming, we saw in Leviticus that you could redeem a piece of land. And in Deuteronomy 25, we saw that you could redeem people. A man who had died without a, without any son to inherit his land. There was that, what they call the leveret marriage or the near kinsman. The nearest family uh, could come in and redeem, raise up a child for that man. And that's what Deuteronomy 25 is talking about. But it says that transaction takes place in the gate. Go back and read Deuteronomy 25 and you'll see it. The gate is there again. How many times the gate is mentioned? It didn't say it in chapter 1, but I thought it. Maybe you did too. That came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. There was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Now, when he went to do that, how did he do it? He went out through the gate. He said to everyone, well, we love you, and we'll see you. We'll be back, and we'll visit from time to time, or you can come see us, or whatever. We don't know what he said. How long he He says sojourn. He meant to go and stay a little while. He never came back. His two sons never came back. The only person who came back through that gate who'd been out it was Naomi. And now she brought with her someone who for the first time came into the gate of Bethlehem. Ruth. She'd never been in that city before. And now she's learning. We're going through... The book of Ruth, and we're seeing how Ruth is learning and how she is developing in her character and how she's manifesting her testimony to people by the way she behaves. So out that same gate, or in in that same gate that Elimelech went out, now sits Boaz. He's the kinsman, and he's sitting there in the gate of Bethlehem. How many times, this is for you Bible students, how many times the gates are mentioned in the Scripture? Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Abraham, when he went to purchase a place to bury his wife Sarah, he dealt with the children of Heth. He dealt with them in the gate in front of witnesses to buy the piece of land. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're told when you have a disobedient and rebellious son who's a glutton and a drunkard, it says to take him before the elders in the gate and to deal with it. In Joshua, we read about the gates of the city of refuge, the cities of refuge, those cities where a a person who accidentally killed someone could flee and he could seek refuge. But he had to stop in the gate and he had to explain his case to the people of the city of refuge to be admitted into the city. All these things were done in the gate. 
Elijah, when he met the widow in Zarephath, he met her in the gate. In Psalm 69, which tells us about the Lord Jesus, it's a a messianic psalm. Psalms that speak prophetically of the life of Christ. It says, they that sit in the gate speak against me. The Lord there telling us prophetically what was going to happen in Jerusalem. How the leaders of Jerusalem, they might have put on a nice face in front of him. But when they sat in their little groups and their little councils there in the gate, they spoke and they spoke against him to the people that were coming and going in the gate. Trying to poison the hearts of the people against the Lord. He said he knew it. They that sit in the gate. Speak against me. But how wonderful is Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And the King of glory will come in. That's going to be a wonderful day, isn't it? When through the gate of the city of Jerusalem, that gate that's now sealed, the golden gate, the sealed because uh, a, a ruler back in the Middle Ages heard the prophecies that Christ was supposed to come in through the gate and he stoned, he walled it up, he stoned it up, he closed it. And sealed it so no one can come in through that gate. It's the gate that would go into the temple complex. That gate is sealed to this day. And the only thing he did by that was to make sure that only the true Messiah can go through that gate. And believe me, he will. In Proverbs 31, verse 23, we find the husband of the virtuous woman sitting, not her, him, sitting in the gate of the city. Sitting with the elders in the gate. Because this is where they brought all the affairs of the city to deal with them. To these men who sat in the gate. And there they went to discuss with them whatever uh, whatever the subject, whatever the matter needed to be treated. In Lamentations chapter 5 and verse 14 we read, The elders are no longer in the gate. When the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, Jeremiah wrote this book, Weeping and lamenting the destruction, the judgment of God that fell on the people that were disobedient and that wouldn't hear. Read the book of Jeremiah. We looked at it one night. Remember that? What was the problem with the people? All through the book of Jeremiah, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. It went in one ear and went out the other. And so at the end, the city is destroyed. And Jeremiah is lamenting. And he said, the elders, among many other things that were wrong with the destroyed city, the elders are no longer sitting in the gate. There's no one there anymore. There's no one to seek counsel. There's no one who's watching over us. There's no one to guide the city. In this gate, in Bethlehem, sat Boaz. And by divine providence, which is just what we had in chapter 2, when it says, uh, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and it happened that she came to a part of the field that belonged to Boaz. What does that mean? It happened. Well, it means that's using the language of human appearance. She didn't choose the field. She didn't say, oh, this man, she didn't know he was a relative. She didn't even know him. She just happened to come to this field. This was the one she chose. But we know that divine providence is guiding her. And this is what we have here. He goes and sits in the gate. He does his part. He goes out to the place of meeting. And it happened that the person that he needed to meet with came by. And he said to him, Ho, such a one. Uh, I like it better in Spanish. It says, Eh, fulano. Fulano is a name they use like for so-and-so. When you say so-and-so or such a person or we say sometimes in English, every Tom, Dick, and Harry. They say, Cada fulano. Fulano and mengano. It's just, they're just names. They're not anybody's names. They're just 
imaginary names they give to people. And that's what the scripture puts in, in Spanish. And it's because the Lord has drawn a kindly veil over the name of this man. So that we wouldn't know his name. He doesn't want him to be, uh, he doesn't want us to dwell on him and to criticize him because his, he is not the point of what's happening here. There's another person that we should be thinking about here. And so the Lord in his kindness uh, doesn't reveal to us this name. Look at verse 2. He says, and he took this, he is Boaz. He took ten men of, this, of the elders of the city. And he said what they so often say in the Middle East in the short time that I lived there. But whenever the brethren had something they wanted to discuss or they needed to, to uh, treat some subject, this is the way they said it. Come sit with us. Sit with me. This is what it means. We have something to talk about. Come sit. They like to do it face to face. They like to sit down and be calm and talk. They don't like to do it on the phone. Now, I know sometimes you need, and the phone's a wonderful convenience when you have it, but how much better is face to face? It says this in Second John and in Third John, I have many other things to discuss with you, to say to you, but I'll wait until I see you. I want to see you face to face. Sit with me. Come, sit. Calm and talk. Let's talk this out. And this is what happens here. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit you down here. He sat. The other kinsmen sat. And the ten men sat. Do you think that was all? Twelve people? Come down to where we were reading in verse 11. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So this is the gate of the city. People are going, coming and going, and they see these men sitting and talking, and they're standing around listening, and it's okay. They can stand around and wait. They're all witnesses to what's going on. There are no secrets there. So here they all are, sitting, sitting in the gate. And now the discussion. Boaz takes the lead because he's the one that made the promise, and he says in verse 3 to the kinsman, See, still doesn't tell us his name. Naomi, that is coming again out of the country of Moab, sells a parcel of land. It was our brother Elimelech's. Now he's going into the detail about the land first. He's not talking about the other. First he brings up the land. Remember, in Leviticus, you have the redemption of land. In Deuteronomy, you have the redemption of people. So he's going by parts here. He takes up the question of the land first. He's thought this out, how he wants to do it. And he says, I thought to advertise or to say to you, buy it before the inhabitants. It means before witnesses. That everyone will know, the the people of the city and the elders here, buy it. We're doing this publicly. Will you buy it? And if you won't buy it, tell me because I'm the only other one. It's only you and me. We're the only ones. Why is that? Well, because we saw when we were looking into this the other day. That the land could not be sold perpetually. The land belonged to God. And when the children of Israel came into the land, they came out of Egypt and they finally came into the land. And the land was divided up to each tribe except the Levites. The Levites had 48 cities that they lived in all through Israel. But all the other tribes had their piece of land, their area, their region. And in that, each family got a part and they went to dwell. That was their land. It really belonged to the Lord, but they were, let's put it this way, they were the caretakers of God's land. God never gave that land to any other nation to be a caretaker of it. He gave it to his people. 
And the church does not take the place of Israel. We do not believe in replacement theology. Replacement theology that kicks out Israel and says they no longer matter and puts the church in to, strangely enough, take all of the blessings promised to Israel, but none of the curses. Not going to happen. Read Romans chapter 11. God's plan for the nation of Israel is he is powerful to graft them back in again. Israel has a future in the plan of God. And every promise, every blessing that he has offered to them will be literally fulfilled. So when we come to this about the the redeeming the land, we have to remember that it's limited. Only Boaz and this other man who comes before him because he's a closer kinsman. No one else. In the book of 1 Kings, Ahab tried to get Naboth to sell him his vineyard. He said, I'll buy it from you and I'll give you another piece of land. You see, he wasn't talking about renting the land. He wasn't talking about taking it and giving it back in the year of Jubilee. He was talking about, I want this for me forever. I'll give you another piece of land. And Naboth said, God forbid that I should sell to you my family's land. He wasn't just being hard to get along with. He knew. This was the land that God had given them, and he couldn't give it up. He couldn't give it up perpetually, and and much less to a pagan king with a Jezebel for a wife. He wasn't going to give them that land. God forbid. He paid for that decision with his life. But he did the right thing. He couldn't sell it to Ahab. So, there are only two people that can redeem this land. This unnamed kinsman and Boaz. Buy it, he says. And here you see how the word is repeated. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not redeem it, tell me that I may know. There's none to redeem it. You get the idea here? It's like when I went to pilot uh, training. Oh, that was a long time ago, but I still remember all the things. We have to know everything about the aircraft because when you're up in the air, something goes wrong. You can't pull into a, a gasoline station or call AAA. You have to know enough about the aircraft to know what your options are and what possible corrections you can make in order to get back safely. Well, it was impossible to remember everything for these exams, but the fellow who was teaching us was a pilot himself. And so whenever he would come across a piece of information that he knew was going to be on the exam, he'd start doing this. How many revolutions must the engine be at during engine start? Between 3,000 and 5,000. He's doing this and we're all writing it down like madmen. He's stomping his foot. This is important. This is going to be on the test. When you see a word in the Bible that's repeated over and over again, that's God stomping his foot. This is important, he's saying. Remember this. So when you read, this is one of the simple things about Bible study. People want to know a lot of complicated technical methods of Bible study. My simple advice is read it and read it and read it and read it again. And after that, read it again. And when you read it five times, read it six and read it another time. And you're going to start noticing things that are repeated. You're going to start getting the idea. You won't get it in one or two readings. But if you read it five, six, seven, eight times, so I already read it. That's right. You already read it. Read it again. It's one of the the simple secrets of Bible study, to read and look for the repetitions. And here they are, right in front of us. Redeem, 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 redeem. You think we might be getting the idea here, what God is talking about? Redemption. He's talking now about buying the land. 
This land has been lying there fallow, uncultivated. It was Elimelech's land. It was Malon's land and Kilion's land. But they are not there to take care of it. That land has just been lying. Everybody else is, is preparing their land and sowing it and harvesting. And their land is just lying there. They're redeeming the land. They're buying it back. They're going to make it useful. They're going to revive it. It's going to be productive again. So it's an opportunity. A piece of land. I don't know what a square foot of land or how they measure it here in Spain. It's square meters. I don't know what uh, what land is worth here. Probably a lot in this area. But he's thinking so much land. The harvest. And what I could get from that. And I can sell the grain right away. He says, I'll redeem it. Oh, this is one of those examples of people who make a quick decision without counting the cost. Because then in verse 5, we come to this where it's as if Boaz said, let me finish. Then he tells him the second part. Because in Leviticus, we have the redemption of land. And in Deuteronomy, we have the redemption of people. This land is lying fallow because the man who owned it died. This land is lying fallow because the man who owned it, his two sons died. And they don't have any sons. There's no men to work this land, to own this land. So the second part of the story is, it's not just the land, it's the family. Here's a piece of land in Israel that God has given to his people. And this this man has no inheritance. He has no heirs to carry out, to live on this land and to carry out their responsibility with it. So he says... Now, what day you buy the field, verse 5, of the hand of Naomi. Now he comes to the second part. Thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. This is not going to be yours. You have to take the land and you have to take her. Naomi's too old. She's not going to have children. But Ruth is the one who could have children. And they could be the heir to this land, the Limelech's land, Malon's land, Kilion's land. So you're going to take the land, you're going to take her, and this land is going to be theirs. He's going to be the one who has it for an inheritance. He's going to be the heir to this land. Oh. And the kinsman says right away in verse 6, I cannot redeem it. This is the way people are sometimes about Christianity. They hear an inspiring message. They hear an inspiring song. They go to a meeting and they have an emotional feeling or they get weepy or they get euphoric and they say, Oh, I want to follow the Lord. I'm in. And then they start finding out what Christianity is about. You see, they made a quick decision. They didn't count the cost. Luke chapter 14 says, what man goes to war against another, or what man goes to build a tower, he doesn't sit down first and count the cost to know what you're getting into. How many people can say, uh, uh, I became a Christian, and you ask them what the gospel is? Like my friend in another place, he asked this woman, she said, I want to join the church. And he said, well, uh, are you a Christian? Yes. And uh, he said, well, uh, can you tell me what the gospel is? And she said, yes. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. How many of you would have said, Oh, wonderful! Well, my friend is what we call in Spanish. It doesn't sound as good in English. We call him a perro viejo. An old dog. 
doesn't sound good in English, but the old dog, he knows. He's been around the block a few times. It means he's a veteran. So when she said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he said, what does that mean? Can you explain to me what that means? She said, oh, what do I know? That's what they told me in another church. It's just words. And then you start finding out, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Oh, no, no, no. They didn't tell me about that. I didn't know there was commitment. Huh. Well, count the cost before you say, I'm in. The Lord wants you in. For the Lord says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. His sheep do two things. They hear his voice, and they follow him. So this man here, he made a quick decision. And then he reversed himself. I cannot redeem it. He's worried. He says, I can't redeem it for myself lest I mar my own inheritance. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant, I'm going to spend all of my time and money all of my effort, I'm going to cultivate this land. And then this other fellow who's not even going to end up being my son, he's going to carry Elimelech's family name. And he's going to inherit all the land and I'm not going to have it. said, and all that time I spend on that, I could be spending it on my stuff. I'm going to ruin my inheritance. It's going to cost me too much. I can't do it. I cannot redeem it. Well... It's better for him to say it then, than down the road, having taken the land to change his mind and cause problems for everyone else. It's better for him to say it then. I cannot redeem it. Now, when we think about redemption, and we've been hearing about it, and we've been singing about it, we thought about it during the Lord's Supper, and we've been thinking about it in the hymns that we've listened to, I want you to remember, there is no one else who can redeem us except Jesus Christ. No one else. I cannot redeem. That's what Adam could say. Adam is a nearer kinsman to us. We all descended from Adam and Eve. He's our near kinsman. No man and no man's religion can do anything to redeem us, to buy us, to get us out of our situation, to save us. No man's religion. Well, Romans says, and Adam all died. We died spiritually as sons of Adam. Not just that. He couldn't redeem us because as sons of Adam, as descendants of Adam, we're all in trespasses and sins. No man can redeem another. Psalm 49. It speaks about the rich. But it could be speaking just as easily about anyone. But here he says in Psalm 49, verses 6 and 7, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious. They can't pay the price. None of them can by any means redeem his brother. So you're going to go trust in a church. You're going to go trust in a sacrament. You're going to trust in your works. You're going to trust in some philosopher. You're going to get nowhere. You're not going to be redeemed by holy men. You're not going to be be redeemed by Bible preachers. You're not going to be redeemed even by the Bible. We gave a Bible to a man one time. 
He asked us if he could have a Bible. We gave it to him. Went to see him a few weeks later. I said, how's, the, how's it going with the Bible? He said, fine, fine, I'll show you how I'm using it. He took us into his bedroom. He had it under the pillow. So what's it doing there? He said, oh, I use it to keep evil spirits away from me. He never even cracked it open. The Bible is not a good luck charm. Church attendance will not redeem you. There's only one person that can redeem you. Good works can't do it. We learned that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. By the deeds of the law, that means doing the things that the law commands, good works. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be redeemed. No one. No flesh be justified. So, all a man's religions, all humans, all philosophers, all holy men, all prophets, everything, and even the law of God itself has to say, redeem thou. That's what he said here. I can't redeem it. Redeem thou. You do it. You redeem. I can't do it. And this is what they all have to say. And we have to learn the truth of that. That the only place where there's any hope for us is in the one of whom we sang this morning. My Redeemer. I brought it with me today, and today I'm going to remember it. Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn, walked Christ my Savior, weary and worn, facing for sinners, death on the cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems now I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding, For sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. Father, forgive them, thus did he pray. Even while his lifeblood flowed fast away, praying for sinners while in such woe, no one but Jesus ever loved so. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems now I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding. Four sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. Oh, how I love him, Savior and friend. How can my praises ever find in? Through years unnumbered on heaven's shore, my tongue shall praise him forevermore. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer. Seems now I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding, Four sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. Redeem thou, redeem me, Lord. I can't save myself. The church can't save me. My works can't save me. This is the cry we have to make to our Lord and Savior. He's the only one who can do this for us. No son of Adam. And no holy book. As wonderful as the scriptures are. And in them we find the way to eternal life. But they are not a good luck charm. They tell us the way of life. And they tell us that life is found in the one who gave his life for us. So maybe there's someone here today that needs to say in the words of that hymn, Dying for me. My Redeemer, your only Redeemer, your only hope for redemption is the one who died for you at Calvary. I cannot redeem. Redeem thou, he said. And then the sign of the shoe. He took off his shoe, verses 7. 
And, and they talk about that. Now, we read over in the book of Deuteronomy that when a man says he won't redeem, that the woman is supposed to take his shoe and spit in his face because he wouldn't do the job that God required. This situation is a little bit different. This situation is about uh, simply, first of all, the sale of land and then the redemption. And whenever they uh, had a sale of land, they did that. They took off their shoe and handed it to someone. That's like shaking hands or signing a contract. That was the way they did it. But in this case, the added uh, act of the spitting in the face, the woman coming to the gate and spitting in the man's face who wouldn't redeem her, who left her without an heir for her family. That didn't take place. Probably because, first of all, Ruth was was not born in Israel. She came from Moab. And secondly, because there was another redeemer. There was someone there standing right there in the gate to do it. And so that part of the transaction was overlooked again by the grace of God or passed over. And so he says, buy it for thee. Buy it for yourself, he says. And in that word, buy, which is the idea of redeem, we have it repeated in verses 9 and 10. I have bought all that was Elimelech's and Kilion's and Malon's. And he says, furthermore, I have purchased Ruth to be my wife. I want to ask you a question this morning. If you're a Christian, if you have come to the new birth by faith in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you a question this morning. Why do you think Christ redeemed you. Why did he do that? Did he redeem you just to get you out of hell? Did he redeem you just so you could say, hallelujah, my sins are forgiven, I'm free? Did he redeem you like someone who who said one time, uh, it's like opening a cage and letting the bird go free out of the cage? It's like buying somebody in the market of sin, the slave market of sin. You buy the slave and then you set him free. You give him his freedom and he can go off and do whatever he wants. Is that what redemption is? No. That's a half picture of redemption. The the biblical picture of redemption is this. Come with me to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 to 14, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people or a special people, Zealous of good works. We are redeemed to him. He bought us for himself. He bought us because he wants to have that relationship with us. Because he wants us to hear his voice. And to walk with him and to follow him and have fellowship with him. He didn't turn us loose to go off and do whatever we want. He freed Biblical freedom and liberty is always in the context of from sin and condemnation. It's never to go off and do whatever you like. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We said it the other night, and I'll say it again. If you don't like it, there's the door. If you're a Christian, you gave up your rights at the foot of the cross. 
you belong to God. I am happy to belong to him. I can say, hallelujah, I am his. It's a wonderful thing to be free, not just from sin, but to be free from self and self-will. So now we come to the declaration. We've been talking about it a little bit in verses 9 and 10. Boaz declares himself to be the redeemer. He declares it publicly. And then the blessings begin to flow. He says, I bought it all. I redeemed. I purchased it. I purchased the land, Leviticus, and I've taken Ruth to be my wife, Deuteronomy. Those two passages that we looked at, there they are. He said, I bought the land and I took her. He had to do both. He couldn't tell the other kinsmen, oh, well, but uh, let me finish. But in the day you buy the land, you have to take Ruth also to raise up an heir for her. He put that requirement out there. And then he fulfilled it himself. He was willing to do it. This is not the kind of man who makes hypocritical statements about what other people ought to do. And then in his personal and private life, he's not doing it himself. He comes through. I purchase her to be my wife. It doesn't say, I agree to live with her. There's going to be a marriage. This is not a common law thing here. There's going to be a marriage. There's a commitment, and it's being made here in front of witnesses. You are all witnesses this day. Now, when you come to verse 11, here come the blessings. 11 to 17, here come the blessings. All the people that were in the gate and the elders, we don't know how many people were there. We know there were at least 12, Boaz, the other kinsmen, and these 10 men who were sitting there. So we know there was 12 there. Here's all these other people who by now have stopped in the gate and they're listening to what's going on. And they all said, we are witnesses. And the people give the first blessing. The first blessing comes from the mouth of the people. Look what they say in verse 11. The Lord make the woman that is coming to thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which of which two did, did build the house of Israel. He said, let, let her be like Rachel and Leah, Jacob's two wives, that all the twelve tribes of Israel came from them. May, may you have a fruitful house. May your wife be fruitful. And yourself, he says, do thou worthily and be famous. He had no idea. They had no idea when they said that. What fame was going to come to the house of Boaz. But I love it. And your house, he says, be like the house of Perez in verse 12. So they bless the wife. They bless Ruth. They bless Boaz. They bless the household of Boaz in verse 12. They said, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. And there you see it again, the difference between Boaz. Boaz was not a young man, but Ruth was a young woman. And these two God had brought together with a special purpose. The first blessing came from the people. In verse 13, the next blessing came from God. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. There's the wedding. Because when a person took uh, the wife of his brother or near kinsman who had died to raise him up, it wasn't just one of these, what they say commonly in street language, shacking up. It wasn't that. They weren't living in sin. This is an agreement made publicly according to the scriptures and in the sight of witnesses. And he took her and she was his wife. The Lord gave her conception. 
He went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. So there it is. First of all, the first blessing is marriage. And second, the, the second blessing is an heir. They have a son. God is blessing them. God controlled the womb, didn't he? When Isaac's wife could not bear children, it says Isaac besought the Lord. He prayed to the Lord for his wife, and the Lord opened her womb so that she could conceive. We're too quick to call on men to do what sometimes God should do. Verse 14, now the women are blessing. And now they're not blessing uh, Boaz and his, his wife and his house. They already got the blessing. And Boaz and Ruth, they're blessed with the marriage and the child. But now look, when the child is born, we're talking now, the time has passed. It's probably 9, 10, 11, 12 months later. Verse 14, that lapse of time when the child is born. And the women said to Naomi, now they're talking to who? Not to Mara. They never call her that in the book. They call her Naomi. The women said to Naomi. Now they're encouraging her. Look at the ministry of encouragement to her. Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be to thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became a nurse to it. She took care of this child. She was like the nanny of this child. Not because Ruth couldn't take care of her, take care of the, of the child, but out of love. And the Lord used this to bless the life of Naomi. The women bless her and encourage her. I don't think she called herself Mara anymore, do you? She had no idea what God was going to do in her life. And now she's beginning to see the fruit of it with this little boy in her arms. The Lord brought me back empty, she said. What do you think? What do you think? She look empty to you? Doesn't look empty to me. She never got that blessing in Moab. Don't you ever forget it. No children were ever born to that family in Moab. No blessings ever came in Moab. When you get out of the, away from the people of God and out of the will of God, you can go off and tell everybody else what a good time you're having. Oh, we're swimming and fishing and we're having wine and, and cheese like the crowd in North Carolina. They call them the wine and cheese crowd around the University of North Carolina. You can say how happy your life is and how wonderful. But let me tell you this. You're not getting any blessing from God. The devil can bless you and the world can bless you. But those blessings are worth nothing. The blessings that God give last forever. She took the child. She laid it in her bosom and became his nurse. How wonderful. Those women, they had no idea what they were speaking. I say they're speaking almost as prophetesses. Because they said, he'll be a restorer of your life. Isn't that what the Messiah is for us? Isn't the Lord Jesus the one who's restored life to us and given us joy and peace and hope when we had none? He's in the lineage of this little boy that's in Naomi's arms. And she's looking at him. And the women are encouraging Naomi. And they never called her Mara. They're encouraging her. She took the child and she's raising that child. And the women... I don't know why they were allowed to do this, but they gave the child the name. Obed. It means servant. So, well, they should have called him Elimelech or Melon. You know, 
when uh, John the Baptist was named, his father, Zechariah, he said his name is John. And all the people said, why are you calling him John? There's nobody in your family named that because the tradition was to give him a name of somebody in the family. They do this in Spain and that's why all the men in Spain are called Jose <laughs> and all the women are called Maria. And nearly every family has Jose and Maria in it. And sometimes Jose, Jose, Maria, and Jesus also. <laughs> well, they called him Obed, servant. Oh boy, was he ever a servant. And was the one who was a descendant of Obed down through the years. I'm not talking just about David now. I'm coming all the way down in the book of Matthew to Jesus Christ, who was born of the lineage of David who came from this lineage of Boaz and Ruth, who came from the tribe of Judah. We come down to the Lord Jesus. Mark says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The great service that God has done for us is that he became a man. And he went to the cross at Calvary and he paid the price of our redemption that no man could ever pay. He paid it with his life. He bore our sins in his body. His blood was shed there at Calvary. And he cried out as he died, it is finished. The great work of redemption, finished by the Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever served like him. And how can we, if we are his followers, be anything but servants? This should be our name, shouldn't it? Well, you have a name. You have a name that your parents gave you. You may have a nickname that your friends gave you. But God wants you to be in spirit and in behavior like Obed. They called his name Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David, verse 17. Now, we're not going to go into the genealogy. You have plenty of teachers and you're all learning how to study the Bible. You're going to have to go into that on your own. We know that the book of Ruth was not written until the days of King David. And we know it because of this verse 17. They didn't know this ahead of time. So when they wrote this, and this is one of the purposes of the book of Ruth. One of the purposes is to show us finally something good that happened in the days of the judges. And the other thing is to show us the lineage of King David. To show us where he came from. And the other thing that the book of Ruth does, because it goes into these genealogies, when it goes back into verse 18, it says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the son of Judah by Tamar, who was another Gentile woman. That comes out in Matthew, but you're going to have to go read it. I promise we're not going to go into it right now. This is the link between Genesis and 1 Samuel. This genealogy here at the end of Ruth is the link. It links Genesis and 1 Samuel together. It's repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 2. It's repeated in Matthew. This is the link that shows, and I am so glad to see these things, to see these Gentile women that came in, Tamar and Rahab. Rahab, you know whose who's son, who was the son of Rahab? You want me to tell you? Boaz. Rahab's son. Tamar. Rahab. Ruth. 
And if you come to the New Testament, there was an immoral Jewish woman who's added to these three Gentiles, Bathsheba, an adulteress. All of these women were forgiven by the grace of God and brought into the lineage of the Messiah. Three of them are Gentiles. I'm not a Jew. I don't know about you, but I know this. Because Gentiles are in the lineage of the Messiah, God wants to redeem poor lost Gentiles like us. You are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, who by faith in Christ have come to be redeemed. Now, we want to conclude by having uh, a little short interview with Ruth and Naomi. Ruth, are you sorry that you returned with your mother-in-law? Are you sorry you left your family? Do you wish you were back in Moab? Are you sorry you said, thy people will be my people and thy God my God? What a people is yours now, Ruth? And you're the grandmother of King David. A Moabite woman. You're the grandmother of King David. You're the great-grandmother of the great King Solomon. What a God is yours now. What a God is hers and what a God is ours who can take lost, idolatrous, Gentile woman or any other and put them in the lineage of Christ, put them in the family of God. And God has done that with every one of us who's taken refuge under his wings. A full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. Have you come to trust? Are you just a church attender? Or have you really come personally to trust under the wings of the living God who can forgive your sins and make you a new person in Jesus Christ and include you in his family? This is Ruth. Naomi, who's that you got in your arms? Aren't you the one, Naomi, refresh my memory, aren't you the one who said, call me Mara, for I went out full and the Lord brought me back empty? Didn't you say that? Shouldn't we call you joyful instead of bitter? Shouldn't we call you blessed instead of empty? You who said the Lord brought you back empty. Who's that you have in your hands now? You returned in a time of harvest and you got blessings. You reaped where you didn't sow. You got blessings and everything has been restored. And now you have more than you ever lost. This is the way our God is. And this is the way the grace of God is. He's waiting to bless you if you'll just come and trust in him. May the Lord bless his word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, this morning we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we give thanks to the one you sent from heaven to earth to be our redeemer, the one who humbled himself, the one who was found in fashion as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We know that he gave his life to redeem us. He died that we might live. He suffered that we might never have to suffer. He came down to this place that we might go up forever to his wonderful dwelling place. And we're thankful to be included in the family of God. We're thankful for the gospel that is the power of God to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. We're thankful that there is grace and power to save and to bless the lives of everyone who trusts in you. And so we give you thanks for these few lessons that we have learned from your wonderful book. And we pray 
that they would live forever in our hearts and in our lives. We commend ourselves to you. Dismiss us now with your blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.